Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you will turn to Daniel chapter 9. And while you're turning there, let me, let me um, release the kids to Children's Church. If you have children through second grade and you want to send them to Children's Church, right back in, the, in this corner underneath the Children's Church sign, David and Marianne, they're going to take them back there so the kids, they can go out now. Sometimes worship's so good, you just forget what's going on. We, we had a good Thanksgiving. I uh, hope you did too. But uh, as, as they're going out, we, we had a good Thanksgiving. Um, th- this is a time of year that I, I really, really love. I really love Thanksgiving, really love Christmas. I'm getting to be around family, friends. And, and then the cheesy things like the movies and the lights and all that stuff. I, I just I love it. Um, but listen, if, if your week was like mine, you're going like a million miles an hour in a million different directions. It's good to just reorient our hearts around Christ. Um, and so what we're doing is we are creating some time tonight. And we're not going to do anything here. Um, but we want you to go home and spend time with your family um, and, and gather around the Word some way. And you say, well, I don't, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to teach a Bible study. I've never done that. Just read the Word together. Word, there's power in the Word. And you say, well, didn't we just spend a lot of time with family? Why do we have to go do some more? Listen, if you're, if you're like my family, again, a million miles an hour, let's just slow down for just a little bit tonight and just reorient around the God's Word as a family going into this season. Can we do that tonight? All right, Daniel chapter 9. Um, you know, I'm so... I've been waiting for this chapter. All right, like, like you know, I like the lion's den. I like the fiery furnace. I love all that stuff. But, but I have been wanting to preach Daniel 9 so I could get to Daniel chapter 9. All right, like this is, this is by far my favorite chapter in the entire book. And there's just, there's so much there and it's so intense um, as Daniel is praying. And so I want to talk this morning about Christ-centered prayer. Okay, we are, our series in Daniel, every, every chapter has been Christ-centered something. Okay, and so we get to Daniel chapter 9, and, and the focus is Christ-centered prayer. James chapter 5 says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Or, or you might, your version might say the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then what James is going to do is he's going to go out and he's going to say, Elijah was a man just like us. I mean, we, we read that so fast, we skip over the, the fact that, he's, that he points out that Elijah was just like us. And then he says that he prayed, and for, he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and for three and a half years, not a drop fell. You think there'd be some mad farmers um, then? And that's a lifeblood of where I come from is rain. Okay? And he prays in three and a half years, God closes the heavens. And he prays again, and the floodgates burst open um, at, at this man who prayed powerfully. Now we we don't we don't pray like that. Okay? Like like either either we don't need God, like 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 I think that's how we sometimes live, that I don't really need God. Like I need Him for salvation, but I've got everything else pretty much figured out. And if the if the medical news is too bad or the bank account's too low or something really tragic happens, then I'll dial them up. But, but see, we don't pray because maybe, maybe we don't need God or maybe we don't believe that prayer actually works or maybe we've just forgotten how to pray. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, would attract large crowds, sometimes as many as 10,000. And, and pastors would come from all over the world to talk to him and say, what are, you, what are you doing to attract these crowds? God is moving among you. What are you doing? And he would take him down to the basement where the prayer room was. At any point in the day, there would be someone there praying that God would do great things there. And, and Spurgeon said, here, pointing out the prayer room, here is the powerhouse of the church. Hundreds of people, while he preached, would be under the pulpit in the basement praying 
as Spurgeon preached to thousands. James chapter 4 says, you, you do not have because you do not ask. You, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Now what James says here, it, it implies two things. It, it implies if we ask, and we ask rightly, we would receive. Now, now we're Baptists and we do everything we can to try to explain away why this isn't right. But the fact of the matter is that by the Word of God, if we ask and ask rightly, we'd receive. And, and James is saying that you don't ask. And when you do, you're asking wrongly, and so you don't receive. This, this morning, what I want to talk to us about is, is, is what asking rightly looks like. I want us to see what asking rightly looks like. I want to talk about Christ-centered prayer. So if you found Daniel chapter 9 and you're physically able, if you'd like to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So, so what Daniel's looking is he's looking in Scripture to try to figure out how long they're going to be in exile. Verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant, and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments. We've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We've not listened to Your servant, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To You, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which You've driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against You. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against You. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for, for we... Verse 11, is that better? All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. He has confirmed His word which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has been nothing there has been done anything like what has been done before Jerusalem. Verse 13, as is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all His works that He's done. And we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself as this day, we've sinned. We've done wickedly. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city Jerusalem, Your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and Your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of Your servant and to His pleas for mercy and for Your own sake, O Lord. Make Your face to shine upon Your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline Your ear and hear. Open Your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by Your name. For we do not present our pleas 
before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. So this morning, no fluff, just Christ-centered prayer. You guys with me this morning? Okay, Christ-centered prayer, number one. Christ-centered prayer is rooted in God's Word. Christ-centered prayer is rooted in God's Word. If you look back with me at verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. And so Daniel, he's looking in the Word of God before he prays. Okay, which I, which I find really interesting. Okay, they, they don't have Bibles like we have, right? Like they, they would have scrolls that a certain prophet, um, a certain man of God might have written. And if you're going to read Jeremiah, you had to go somewhere and find a scroll that had all, all his writings on it, but they didn't have... Um, scripture had not been canonized like we have right now. That, that would come much later. But Daniel was reading in the book of Jeremiah and he understands that the, that the exile is coming to an end. Like, like Jeremiah chapter 29 says that, that the Israelites would go into captivity for 70 years and Daniel's like counting on his calendar and, and he's realizing that the captivity is coming to an end. They're approaching the end where they're going to get to go back to um, Jerusalem. And, and so... Time in the Word is what's going to drive Daniel's prayer. Everything that follows is because he had just spent time in God's Word. Now, as I share the Gospel, I talk to people, um, and I talk to them about their relationship to the Lord. And, and many times, many times people will say something to the effect of, oh, yeah, I, I've given my life to the Lord, and um, I prayed the prayer, and, and well, tell me about your relationship with Him now. Well, I... I pray every day. And certainly that's good. But what do you pray? If prayers are not shaped by the Word of God, having spent time with God, what do you pray? If you're like me, usually it's something selfish. It's hard to pray God's will when we don't read God's will. I submit to you that it's impossible, that without the Word of God, it's impossible to pray Christ-centered prayers. Now let's just look back to where we've come. We've, we've talked about Christ-centered in all areas. Um, we've talked about, um, week one, we've talked about Christ-centered identity. And so if I'm praying something concerning Christ-centered identity, I might pray Colossians chapter 3, um, verse 1 through 3, which I think we, we might have that on there um, on the screen in just a second. We... we I might pray this, but I might pray something to the effect of this. God, I'm seated with You on Your throne. I have been raised with Christ. My identity is in You. I've died. My life is hidden with You. So would You set my mind on things that are above because my identity is now in You. We, we let Scripture guide our prayers. What about, what about attitude? We talked about Christ-centered attitude. We, I might pray Philippians chapter 2. Verse 4, and I might pray, God, would you help me to not be selfish? Would you help me to think of others? Would you help me to look to the interests of others? Because you've given me your mind, I have your mind. Would you give me your attitude? We talked about Christ-centered testimony. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, here's what I might pray. God, would you, would you be with me today? Would you help me to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of you everywhere I go? We talked about Christ-centered hope. Psalm 39, verse 7. My prayer might be, God, my hope is in You. Of all the things I could put my hope in, my hope is in You. We talked about Christ-centered judgment and Christ-centered grace. John chapter 1, verse 16 says that we've been given grace upon grace. So my prayer might be, God, thank You for the grace upon grace. And, and John's probably a little bit better than I am because I might have to pray something like, God, thank You for the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. 
that you've given to to my life. We, we talked about um, we talked about um, Christ centered through opposition. Um, Psalm 123. We could we could read that whole thing. Um, but I might pray, God, I lift my eyes to you. My soul has had enough from people. Have mercy on me. We talked about Christ-centered suffering last week. Um, my prayer might be Romans chapter 8, verse 18. God, I understand that the present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's coming, so would you keep my eyes fixed on you so that I walk in that. Talk to people all the time. Oh, I don't know how to pray. No one's ever taught me how to pray. I don't know what to say. Say the Scripture. That's what Daniel's doing. Dan- the Word of God is driving Daniel's prayer. There's something about letting Scripture guide our prayers that's always right. See, left to myself, I'm scatterbrained. You have, I don't know if you figured that out. I'm scatterbrained. I'm forgetful. I waste time. I'm selfish. That's why I, we, must let the Word of God guide our prayers if we're to pray Christ-centered prayers. Number one, Christ-centered prayers has to be rooted in God's Word. But number two, Christ-centered prayers rejoices in God's glory. Christ-centered prayer rejoices in God's glory. Look at verse 3 with me here. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, Seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And we, we talk a lot, we sing a lot about how God is great and how He's awesome, but I want to point out that towards the end, um, towards the middle of verse 4, um, Daniel points out that, that our God is a God who keeps His covenant. Now, now, who does that? Who keeps their covenant all the time? See, we, we live contractional lives, right? Like your, like your cell phone, you, you pull your cell phone out and, and as long as you're getting good service, you're going to pay the bill, right? Hopefully. It, it, but, but listen, the moment you stop getting good service, what are you going to stop doing? Y'all wait. You're going to stop paying the bill, right? You're going to go like to another company, right? Or if you like stop paying the bill, the service is great, and you stop paying the bill, um, what's, the, what's the cell phone company going to do? They're going to cut you off, right? Like we live contractual lives. Like, like the idea of covenant, that I love you and you love me, and we're not going anywhere, that's like foreign to us. But see, our God is a covenant-keeping God. And so what we do as a church, we are a covenant church that models that because we see it in Christ and it's the Gospel. He's the one that does not give up on us, that loves us, that pursues us, that walks with us no matter what. It says here that He, that he keeps His steadfast love. Who does that? Who keeps? Who, who does that? See, we, we don't. Right? Like, like in church... Um, again, as long as the pastor doesn't say something that offends me, as long as I agree with everything he says, then then I'll stay. Then, then I'll love. But the moment I, I get offended, the moment I, I disagree, I, I'm out of here. Right? Like we bail, or, or we do that in marriage, or we do that at work. You know, we, we, we are prone to bailing, to not keeping steadfast love, but such is our God. Such is our God, a God that keeps His covenant, that keeps His steadfast love. That is great. That is awesome. That's what Daniel's saying here. Daniel is rejoicing in God's glory. And he's putting that at the top of the list before he gets into his prayer of confession, before he prays for God for deliverance, before he does any of that. He focuses on the greatness of God. He focuses on the, on the, um, the awesomeness of God, the steadfast love of God, the covenant-keeping love of God. And by the way, it says that he... What does it say there? It says that he keeps covenant. He keeps steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Did you know that he goes a step beyond that, even what Daniel even knows here? Because Christ came and he kept the covenant for us on our behalf when we could not. And so his love is not just for those 
anymore that keep His commandments, but those of us who are far that are brought near because of the blood of Christ is what we read about in Ephesians chapter 2. But Daniel, he is rejoicing in God's glory. It should be at the top of our list. Glory of God, the goodness of God as we pray. Now this is nothing new. Um, Hannah prays in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Remember she's praying for a child. She, she's not able to have a child in first. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, um, she, she's rejoicing that she has finally um, given a child. And, and here's, what she's, here's how she starts out her prayer. My heart exalts in the Lord. My heart is thrilled in the Lord. Not my heart is thrilled in the child. My heart is thrilled in the Lord. Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19, when the enemy has surrounded Jerusalem, He's not praying first and foremost for deliverance, but He's praying, you, you are God. You alone. Out of all the earth, out of all the kingdoms, You are God. He, he, he's he's uh, rejoicing in the glory of God. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, as he goes toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal. You remember this story? Um, he, he gets all the, all the hundreds of prophets of Baal. And he says, hey, you, you pray to your idol. Um, we'll, set a, we'll set a sacrifice here for you, a sacrifice here for me. Um, you pray to your, your idols, your gods, whoever you want. And I'll pray to my God. And the God that sends fire down from heaven, He's, he's the real God. Prophets bail. All, all day they cry out to their idols. Send fire. Dance around the altar, they cry out, they cut themselves. Nothing. Elijah's turn. He says, Go fill up those barrels of water. Dig a trench around mine. And dump the water on the carpets. So much so that it it ran off and filled the trenches. And here's 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 how he starts his prayer to God. Here's what he says. It's not, God, I'm in a tight spot here. Can you bail me out? He starts out his prayer. Let it be known that you are God. See, his prayer is rejoicing in the glory of God. He's wanting the glory of God. He cares not for his own life. And in fact, the next chapter, he's hoping for death. He's hoping for his own death. So bad. Here, he wants the glory of God. David in Psalm chapter 51, after he just he sinned horribly, um, committed adultery, um, all these things. Here's what David prays. Have mercy according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out transgressions. Blot out my transgressions. First and foremost, he is focused on the steadfast love and the abundant mercy of our God. His prayer is centered in rejoicing around God's glory. What about the disciples? What about the New Testament? The disciples have seen Jesus do all these incredible things. His teaching, miracles, all these things. That They've seen Him go up to the mountain by Himself while it's still dark and pray. They've seen Him pray all night. What do they say? Teach us to pray. In Luke chapter 11, they say, teach us to pray. What does Jesus say? Well, here's how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? What, what, is he, what is he concerned with? The glory of God's name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He, he, he's not focused on his knees. Like, like later comes give us the daily bread. Later comes leave us not in temptation. Every Christ-centered prayer starts out and it rejoices in the glory of God. It's rooted in Scripture and, it, and then it rejoices in the glory of God. The emphasis on the Lord's Prayer with God's name being respected and His kingdom being, being exalted. Which looks much different than our prayer lists. Pick a prayer list from any any small group, any prayer net, any prayer chain, anything. And the, and the emphasis in any of ours, in any of our prayer lists, the focus is on sick people getting better. Now listen, let me, let me just say that that's biblical. You know, it talks about James, if any is sick, have the elders come pray over him. Listen, there's, 
There's nothing wrong with praying for the sick. But what seems to be the rule in Scripture, what seems to be, as you read about people praying, they're more concerned with the glory of God going out despite the circumstance than they are with their own sickness. But see, our, our prayer list is focusing on only sick people getting better and not so much on the glory of the Lord going out. See, for us, glory goes out to God if He heals. Right? But when our focus is on the glory of the Lord, even when He doesn't heal, there's some satisfaction and there's some joy and there's some glory there. We focus on our prayerless focus on the sick people feeling better. Maybe it's the reason our prayers have lost effectiveness. See, God's glory is no longer at the top of our lists. Christ-centered prayer, number one, is rooted in God's Word. Number two, it rejoices in God's glory. But number three, Christ-centered prayer reflects on personal sin. It reflects on personal sin. So, so in some way, the entire book of Daniel has led up to this point. Okay, so like, like nearly 70 years in Babylon, and for the first time, there's any, there, there's any real reflection. Like, like we don't know what Daniel prayed, you know, in, in Daniel chapter 6 when the doors are open. He, he did, again, we, he, didn't, he didn't specify all the things that he prayed. But listen, for the first time, we get to see real personal reflection as Daniel looks at his life and he looks at the life of his people. Okay, look with me in verse 5. Look what it says. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. And we've turned aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, to all the people of the land. You know, it's interesting the wording that Daniel uses here. We've sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside. We've not listened to the prophets. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but, but it seems to me that every word that the Hebrews had for sin is used here. And what Daniel is saying is, if there's a sin, we've done it. Daniel, the great follower of God that seems to do no wrong. If you read on in verse 20, he says that he was confessing his sin. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of the people. There's this, there's this personal reflection, this Christ-centered prayer. It reflects on our personal sin. Look. Let me just backtrack with you for just a second. If you look at verse 5, and stick with me, okay? Everybody look up here. I need your attention. This is going to be, if, if you don't stay with me, you're going to get left behind, and it's not going to be effective, okay? You guys with me? For, can you give me like three minutes to where you're just really locked in? Okay, look at verse 5. In verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly, rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules, which sounds a whole lot like chapter 1, when Babylon is doing all these things, right? Like Babylon's eating the meat sacrificed to idols. Babylon's drinking the wine sacrificed to idols. Babylon's doing whatever they're, they're doing and not taking into consideration the Lord God. Verse 6 says, We've not listened to your servants of prophets who spoke in your name to our kings. Which sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 where he has this dream and Daniel interprets it and says, hey, your kingdom's going to fall and this kingdom's going to rise and then this kingdom's going to rise and this, this kingdom's going to rise. And what's, what's Nebuchadnezzar do, do? Not listen because he goes out in chapter 3 and he builds this great statue building his legacy and name to himself where I don't care what God says, my kingdom's not going anywhere. He doesn't listen. Um, if you look at verse 7, look what it says. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. This word treachery um, is, is um, explicitly linked to idolatry 
which in, in Daniel chapter 3 is what? The, the worship of the golden image, right? Now, now let's read on. You guys still with me? All right, we've got just a couple more verses. Verse 8, to, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, who was driven mad, and for his whole kingdom to see, he was shamed because he, he had pride and did not submit to the Lord. In verse 12, look what it says. He has confirmed his word, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem, our place. Verse 13, as is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works He does. We have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself, as is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. So he talks about the calamity over and over and over and over again. It sounds a lot like Daniel chapter 5 where there's the writing on the wall and God says judgment. You're not going a day further, Babylon. And he brings about judgment. See, there's all these parallels that, that you see uh, against Babylon. Babylon chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. You get to chapter 9 and Daniel realizes that there's not much difference between God's people and Babylon. And the point is, the point of this prayer, the point of this book, is that we are Babylon. God's people, God's house, looks no different than culture. And so for Daniel, he's got to, he's got to learn the lesson that all Israel has to learn, that the Messiah would come. Not to take the people out of Babylon, but to take Babylon out of the people. We always think, like our, we think our biggest problem is external, right? Like if, if my family would just treat me like this. If they just show me a little bit of respect. If my spouse, I mean, if my spouse, if she would just do this, or if he would just do this, then I'd have a good marriage. But, but it's what they're bringing to the table, or... Or if I just had more money, if I just had that, um, or, or maybe, maybe the problem is it's the culture. And look at all the wickedness going on out there. But the reality is, my sin is my biggest problem. Like, like we, don't, we don't need some sort of external, um, we, we don't need an external deliverance, but an internal deliverance. Like, like our culture, our culture says that problems, all our problems are external. Right, like go to any bookstore or get on Amazon Prime or whatever, and you'll find like a million self-help books, right, of all the things that people have done wrong for you, um, done wrong against you, and the solution is to kind of just tap into the internal, right? Like just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And so you have all these books, Seven Ways to Be a Better You, right? Um, Thirteen Ways to Have a Happy Life. You know, we, th that's... That's what culture says, that the problems are all external done to you. If you just tap into the internal, you'll be able to rise above. But the, the text here says that the problem is inside of us. The text says that we need something external to come in and fix us. Which is the purpose of the Messiah. Daniel, there's this realization. The problem's not Babylon. The problem is that God's people are no different than Babylon. The church has become Babylon. If you look at churches today, if you look at the moral failure today, you look at the average church member today. There's no difference. And you look at pastors today. Very little difference between those who claim Christ 
than those who don't. I was talking to a, um, some friends this last week, and it's kind of a friend of a friend type deal. And I was like, so, so, man, this guy seems like a really nice guy. Where does he go to church? And it was like, oh, he doesn't. He's an atheist. And I had him pegged for a Christ follower because he was a nice guy. In many cases, the culture, the world, looks no different than the church. The church has become Babylon. I have to wonder how many, how many of our men are consumed with lust. I think it was Life Church put out a recently a survey among among their people, among Christians. Sixty um, some odd percent of men are, in the church are regularly viewing pornography. Maybe even more surprising than that is 30-some-odd percent of women are viewing pornography. How many of our guys are consumed with lust? Or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's anger. How many of our men are consumed with anger? The way they treat their, their kids, their wife, um, work. It's just anger. Nothing but anger. Or, or ladies, how many of our ladies are consumed with envy of another lady so much so that it keeps them up at night? Or, or gossip. That it's, oh, how are you? You want to come over and let's, let's get lunch. Only to have them turn away and say, I ain't never eaten with them. Or whatever. And then go, and then go slander that person. How, how many of our ladies are in that boat? How many of us are consumed with fear. We're just terrified that even though Scripture says over and over, don't fear, don't fear, I've got you. God says, I've got you. How many of us are consumed by fear? How many of us don't want accountability? That Christ says, I've given you each other to walk with each other so, so, that, so that each other can grow, so that you can get plugged in, so that you can be effective, so that you can take your place in the wall and use your gifts for my glory and good and your good. How many of us don't want that? Because we know that our deepest, darkest secrets would be exposed if someone got to really know us. Now listen, I could, we could talk, I could talk for an hour and just start naming sin after sin after sin until I found yours or I found mine, right? Like we're consumed and we... We've got to take care of things here. Like, like in here, like who cares about out there? We've got to take care of what's in here if we're to be the light and, and people to come to know Christ. Like, like, like always in Scripture, those who live for the Lord share His Gospel and people are attracted to that. People give their life to the Lord and God does great things even when it doesn't seem like it. You, know, you go to some of the harshest places of the world where they give their lives for the gospel. They're some of the most joyful people you'll ever have a conversation or read about. See, when, when God's lifted up and we take care of things in here, God does great things. Regis this week, politician in Ohio who his stance was for marriage. Biblical definition of marriage. Had to resign because he was caught in an act of homosexuality um, with, with another man. Listen, if we don't take care of things in here, that's us. Like, like it's us that says, oh, I believe this because this is what the Bible says about this or this or this or this. When behind the scene, we're practicing it. Like if we don't take care of sin, that's us. And it's just a matter of time before we're exposed. Can't figure out why the altar isn't full every week. 
My only reasoning is that we don't take our sin very seriously. We're more concerned. Uh, I, can't, I can't pray. I can't deal with this. I can't, I can't do this now because so-and-so might think that I'm struggling with this sin. This sin. So I'm not going to go pray. We just sit back. Week in, week out, and the Spirit of God moves. Maybe we've said no so long that hearts have grown cold. There are churches all across the nation. God's Word is going out to dull ears that are unmoved because sin is not taken seriously enough. Christ-centered prayer is rooted in God's Word. That's how we know what sin is. That's how we know what we should pray. That's how we know the direction. Christ-centered prayer rejoices in God's glory. That's number two. Christ-centered prayer reflects on personal sin. And number four, Christ-centered prayer remembers God's grace. Remembers God's grace. So look at verse 15 um, with me here. Verse 15 says, Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, we've made a name for you, you made a name for yourself. As at this day, we've sinned. We've done, we've done wickedly. All right, like that's point three, that we need to evaluate our sin. We need to reflect on it. We need to, to take it seriously. Um, verse 16, though, look what, look what the Lord does. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger, let your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the inhabitants of our fathers, iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation of the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Listen, the, the reason that we can reflect on our sin, the reason there can be repentance for personal sin, the reason that a person can walk in entangled in all sorts of sin and addictions and hang-ups and then leave set free is because we have a God that is gracious. See, grace... Grace is the reason that there's hope. So yesterday, um, you know, we've got, we've got five kids. Most of you know that. We've, we've got five kids. Yesterday, Emerson, our two-year-old, she woke up in one of those crabby moods. You know, you ever, you ever woke up? In a, a two, as, you know, your two-year-old ever woke up like that? And so she wakes up, and from the moment she wakes up, she's, there's like nothing but fits. And she's crying, and she's arguing, and she's doing all these things. That the terrible twos—they give it that name for a reason, right? And I, I think that's too narrow, personally, from my experience. Just two um, terrible twos. I think there's—I think that kind of there's some give and take there. But but Emerson, she's having one of those days, right? And so Randy, she she disciplines um, Emerson as we do our kids when they're out of line. And like Emerson wouldn't have any of that. Like she's crying. She's offended. She wants nothing to do with Randy. All right, so she goes like, like we're at our, we're at Randy's um, stepmom's, and so wh- whoever whoever would give Emerson some attention, that's who she'd go to, because she's mad at Mama, right, for spanking her for throwing a fit. Uh, it wasn't long after that um, that we figured out that Emerson's sick. Okay. And so we had gone with Evan, Randy and I. It had been his birthday and, um, late, earlier this month. We had gone with Evan to give him just some time with just Evan. So we get home and they say, oh, Emerson's sick. You know what Emerson does? Mama! She, she wants mama. Like in that moment that she, that she feels her worst, she wants her mama. Like it didn't matter all the, all the offensive things that had happened. It didn't matter any of that. She wants her mama because there's something about a mama that children long for when they feel their worst. May we long for our Father, who is more gracious than we can fathom, 
when we're at our worst. And may our prayers reflect His grace. Because there's nothing we can do to earn His love. There's nothing we can do to earn His forgiveness. There's nothing we do to earn salvation. And the reason being is what we just read about in Daniel in these verses 15 through 19. Where Daniel's saying, turn away from us in your wrath. You know why God is able to do that? Because He turned away from us in His wrath for our sin and He put His wrath on His Son, Jesus. Like when Jesus is dying on the cross, you know what that's about? That is, that's, not just, that's not just your sins being heaped on Him, which that's true. But listen, Jesus' death on the cross is all about God's wrath being poured out on His Son for yours and my sin. So as Daniel's praying, he, he doesn't even, I don't, maybe he doesn't even know what he's saying when he's saying, turn, turn your wrath away from us. That's exactly what Christ did. God turned His wrath away from us because it, His wrath was turned towards His Son as He died on the cross for our sins. Like that's where salvation happens. When, as, as God draws, as God, as God saves, as God does all these things, as He's doing the same thing He's done all along. He's working. He's doing all the work. Verse 15. I love what verse 15 says points out that God brings His people out of Egypt with a strong hand. See that? With a mighty hand. I want you to know that He can handle our sin. He handled our sin. Like, like He did that. Like we don't have to be scared to come to Him with what we have, with the, with the weight that we're carrying. We don't have to be afraid. Like We don't have to try to hide because He can handle our sin. We don't have to put on the mask like everything's fine. Like church, like I mean, I, I think if you want to learn how to pass a lie detector test, just get involved in church, right? Because it's always, how you doing? Fine. And lots of time. And if we're honest, most of the time, we're not fine. Because this has happened where we're feeling oppressed and we're suffering. Things are overwhelming. Sometimes it has to do with sin. Sometimes it has nothing to do with sin. We put on this mask that everything is fine. And this should be the one place that it should be okay to not be fine. Because this is the place that we find freedom. We're free to just approach Him exactly how we are and let Him pick us up like a child and hold us and clean us so I want to do that. I want to do that right now. I want to approach God now. Not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ. Because of what He's done. I want to just approach Him. I want to enter into a time of prayer where we can pray Christ-centered prayers. I want to give you a chance. Listen, a weird invitation. I want to give you a chance with no music, no songs, I want to give you a chance just to pray Christ in our prayers. Maybe it needs to be focused on, maybe it needs to be rooted in God's Word. Maybe it needs to be focusing on His glory. Maybe it needs to be confessing our sin, reflecting on our sin. Maybe it needs to be just remembering God's grace. Listen, I'll be here. I'll be here to pray with you. There'll be guys and girls here to pray with you. Maybe, maybe here on the front, I'm somewhere. And to give you a chance to use the altar. To pray just at your seat. And give you a chance to pray out loud. Did you know that God could God is, God is so big that if we were all praying right now out loud, he'd be able to hear it. He's a big God. I'm give you a chance to pray out loud. I want to give you a chance to just pray silently in your spirit. And when we're done, we're done. Maybe, maybe. God's drawing someone here, a man, woman, boy, or girl for salvation. They know they need to give their life to Him. Like the offensiveness of your sin, God has brought that up as He has with Daniel. Love to, I would love to talk with you, to pray with you. But I'm going to pray. And then we're going to just enter into a time of prayer. And when we're done, we're done.
God, we pray for even in this moment that you'll draw us deeper into your word. Sometimes we don't know what to say, but your word is right. Your word's always good. Maybe lead us that way. God, maybe we just need to rejoice in your glory, even in this moment. Being so good. Sometimes I'm like a kid. You've given me all these things. And I'm over I'm over in the corner pouting because I wanted something else. God, can we just focus on your glory for just a second? God, I know that in this room, people have things I know about and things I don't know about. But God, I'm convinced that there's sin that has gripped the hearts of men and women in marriage. It's playing a role in that marriage. It's, it's crippling the family. It's rendering them ineffective for the kingdom. God, would you set them free? God, would you help them to be open and honest? Would you make this a place where we're loved in the middle of our sins, and walked with in the middle of our sins, where we don't have to be afraid of what someone might know about us. We're a covenant-keeping people because you're a covenant-keeping God, and that means we walk together in love with each other. God, I pray for the heart that has grown hard to sin. It's grown calloused. But there's no, no desire for personal reflection of that sin. Because they're entrenched in it. They intercede on their behalf. You'll set them free and bring them to a place of obedience. God, maybe we just pray a prayer of thanksgiving for your grace. And even when we're at our worst, you rescue us. God, whatever you lead during this time, may our hearts bow before you. In Jesus' name.